know about you, but our Thanksgiving guests were barely out the door when the Christmas boxes came out of the basement. Um, each year when we pull these boxes out, I seem to think that they multiply at some point during the year. <laughs> there are more and more of them each year. I, I start thinking, Lord, when did we acquire all of these things? Where did they come from? Especially because it's not so long ago in my memory that there was one box, one tiny box. I'm thinking of the year that I first decorated my own place for Christmas, my very first apartment in college. My roommate and I had lived in the dorms for so long that we were really eager to get out on our own and get our own apartment and begin making our way in the world and decorating together. And so I went to the store and bought the only Christmas decoration I could afford. It was $5 at Walmart. Uh, it was a tiny box with a little glass nativity set in it, each piece separate but clearly not cut glass. And you could see the seams all the way around where they had been poured into their molds. And I brought it home and proudly started setting these glass figurines out right on top of our television in the living room. And my roommate, my best friend, came home and observed what I was doing. She took one look at my handiwork and she declared, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> now how can you set up a nativity scene wrong? But she insisted. She said, you, you shouldn't put Jesus out yet. It's not Christmas Day. He has not yet been born until December 25th, where we got that date. And she didn't approve of Jesus making his debut before his birthday had arrived. But I knew that I was right. And so I put Jesus right there, stuck to his little glass manger, front and center where she could clearly see how things were done. <laughs> and then I left to go to class. Came back a couple of hours later, and I noticed right away that something <laughs> Jesus was missing. <laughs> Kidnapped. <laughs> and I knew exactly who the guilty party was. And my instincts told me he could not have gone far stuck to that little glass manger. <laughs> so I pulled open the top drawer of the entertainment center right there beneath the television and there in the middle of a tangle of extension cords was the savior of the world. <laughs> so I pulled him out, and I set him back where he belonged, at the center of the nativity, and then I headed to my room to do some studying. It was probably to take a nap, but for the purposes of this message, and setting a good example for this season of the semester, I was studying. And when I came out of my room a couple of hours later, and glanced on the TV, you can probably guess what happened. Jesus was missing again. Thus began an epic battle between roommates for the rest of the month of December. She would hide Jesus, I would find Jesus and put him back. Um, once my back was turned, he would disappear again. And the hiding places got harder and stranger as the month went on. Once I pulled open the knife drawer in the kitchen, <laughs> to find Jesus nestled between sharp edges. That was certainly no place for a baby. So I, I pulled him out and I yelled across the apartment as loud as I could, I found Jesus! And then I brought him back in and I put him where he belonged. Uh, once, I was washing my hair
chair, and I went to grab the bottle of shampoo. And I found floating inside the Lamb of God. Oh. <laughs> in the shampoo. I'm not making this up. And so I shouted out over the sound of the shower so she'd be sure to hear, I found Jesus! And um, I just have to share that the climax of this battle happened when she finally found a hiding place that was too good for me. I was missing Jesus for over a week at that point. I had searched everywhere I could think of. I went a week with no Savior, which is a Christmas decorator equivalent of a dark night of the soul. <laughs> I looked in all the usual places, all the unusual places. I even went to our, our neighbor's apartment to see if they had seen Jesus anywhere. And then, one day I went to feed the fish. And as the fish food floated down into the bottom of our aquarium, I saw one of the fish swoop down and eat a little pebble of it off of the face of a tiny savior. Thankfully it was glass. And I yelled, of course, I found Jesus. I think that was the last hiding place. But I really never stopped to wonder until I recalled this story years later. Um, what our neighbors thought. <laughs> that these young women in apartment 210 were having quite the religious experience. <laughs> that we had found Jesus again and again and again. And I can't say that my roommate ever converted me to her ways of thinking about Christmas decorations. In fact, as we speak, there are at my house at least five nativity scenes, all with a sleeping baby at their center. But I do understand the sentiment. I do understand her wanting something that we would wait for. And in fact, that's gone much deeper in my life than nativity or decorating. It's gone all the way to Advent. There are probably very few things that are more countercultural than celebrating Advent in a world that's been celebrating Christmas since Halloween than walking in to a chapel where we slow down in a fast-paced world, where we sing carols in minor keys, just as Holly Jolly Christmas and Santa Baby are playing in the grocery store. It's countercultural to take this time to reflect, to wait, to pause, to know that this is a time of restraint and longing, even as the world of instant gratification, parties, and shops, and indulgence all around us. Now, we party and shop and decorate too, but we live in this world of tension, this month especially, where we try to be an already not yet people in a very tangible way. Advent is this divine waiting room that God created for us to sit still for a while before we jump up and declare that we found Jesus. And the problem with throwing the baby out in the manger that very first day and calling it Christmas is that we aren't ready to deliver a baby yet, especially one that's divine. How can we deliver if we've not been expectant? If we haven't gestated, what, it is, what is it that we think we're going to and the problem with the way our culture casually throws Christmas out there is not that we shouldn't be joyful or merry or bright. We should be all of those things in this season. But we don't want to have a premature birth this season. We want to wait 
the longing for Christ developed in us. Christmas without Advent means that we're so excited about the Christmas story that we haven't taken time to figure out what the story really is or where God stands in this story, where his story overlaps ours. And as we grow for a story that would be deep enough for this kind of celebration, we're not sure sometimes. Does this story involve themes from the Grinch? From Frosty the Snowman? From the Charlie Brown Christmas story, maybe. I don't know. But what about Almost Saves Christmas? What about Shrek the Halls? What about, this premiered just a couple of years ago, Grumpy Cat's Worst Christmas Ever? <laughs> Are those the story of Christmas? We need time to think and wait and tell ourselves the story before Jesus just drops into the manger. <clears throat> And as strange as some of those images are, our Advent images are even stranger. Our Advent pre-Christmas story includes melancholy and mysterious passages from prophets like Isaiah. Like the passage read today, a barren tree stump. A dead stump that was once an ancient tree finally has a little sprig popping out of it, the root of Jesse's tree, we're told. And the name Jesse would immediately have people whispering the name David. That bright spot in Israel's history, in the middle of all the tumult, the, the season where Israel was able to sit still and build and develop, the time when they flourished like a great oak, only to be cut down because of their own disobedience and rebellion. The idea here in Isaiah that Israel could grow again into as a picture of the great towering oak of David's kingdom takes our breath away with hope. And this picture of Jesse's tree, a new sprig of green sprouting at the center, is both an astounding one because these people had given themselves up for dead, but it's also one that implies that more waiting is on the way. That this tiny, tender green shoot takes a long, or waiting to give us. Henry Allen said that waiting is a period of learning. That the longer we wait, the longer we wait to hear more about him for whom we are waiting, the more we hear about him, the more we learn. And the waiting of Advent is what we need to understand the miracle of Christmas when it does arrive. This is what we set our internal calendars by every year to learn about, to long for, and finally, to receive a Savior. Every single year, it's like the church grows pregnant with hope and mystery and morning sickness. And every single year we deliver, we find Jesus. Or rather, he finds us, right? And then every single year, Christmas begins what will be a slow march the resurrection. This ancient calendar is like a clock that is right and true. And by looking at it, we can set our own clocks of our lives. We can set our own calendars because we can trust this calendar. We know this story. We want our stories to wrap around it and mirror it every year. It takes doing this again and again until it really makes its mark on us. We need Advent because we are terrible at Come on, 
admit it. This is you. You are impatient if there are two people in line in front of you at the grocery store. You can't stand it if the car in front of you doesn't go when the light turns green for two seconds. Let's not talk about what you do when the internet is slow. <laughs> Don't you think we need to be trained to wait for the most important event in the world's history? Most of us are not good waiters. We need practice. We need training to wait. Because most of our lives will be filled with waiting at almost every stage. Every stage of life, it may look like it's the next stage that we will finally have arrived in especially when you're in this beautifully temporary and transitional community called seminary. The world is full of waiting. And if we don't train to wait, we won't know how to do it well. We won't know how to receive those bittersweet and beautiful lessons that God brings in the waiting. We won't always enjoy it. But most of us will always experience waiting for something. I've spent my share of time waiting. I know we all have. But there have been times in my life, maybe yours too, where it seemed like life was a big waiting room. And everybody else's name was getting called before my own. Uh, more than a dozen years ago, I graduated from this institution, 27 years old, and single. I had been hoping to be married by 25 in that internal calendaring thing we all do where we set out a schedule for ourselves. You know you do it. So now I was two years late by my clock, 27 and single, still hoping, still waiting, but also happy and whole and ready to do the thing that God had called me to do, ready to be done with finals and papers for good and out in the easy and low-stress world of ministry. <laughs> if you didn't laugh, I'll let you hold on to that delusion a little while. <laughs> let me mention that churches don't really know what to do with single people who attend their church, much less single people who come along and try to be their pastor. To say that the church does not have a good understanding of singleness is like saying, that Hitler was not a very nice man. And sometimes people acted as if they were really unsure if I was a full adult yet. I got asked questions like, did I know how to have regular maintenance done on my car? Was I sure I was ready to live alone and do yard work and cooking and pay bills? I had been a card-carrying adult for about 10 years, but I was often asked indirectly if I could manage these things. Other people tried to set me up again and again, usually with their delinquent nephew or grandson. <laughs> they would say things like, he's had such a hard time, you'll be good for him. <laughs> and I wasn't opposed to being set up, but I was really looking for someone who would be good for me. And then at one point I was invited to join the only Sunday school class in the church that had accommodated someone besides couples. Now, don't get me wrong, it had started as a couple's class. All of them had, but over the course of the years, many of them had divorced, and some had somehow managed to remain active in community. And this class, mostly 20 years my senior, was inelegantly called the Pairs and Spares. Wow. <laughs> as if being single meant that you were one of those last few bowling pins that had never gotten quite knocked down by the that God 
Or maybe it was because there was something wrong with me that God wanted to work out. Maybe I wasn't just single for a season. Maybe I was single for a reason. Never mind that I knew far more people who were messed up in their marriages than how it And perhaps, perhaps most painfully, some even implied that singles didn't have as deep a relationship with their that the primary, the ultimate metaphor for relationships that God wanted to have with us is the marriage between a bridegroom and a bride. And perhaps, because some of us weren't married, we couldn't understand God's love. Now that's an important metaphor, I'll give you that, but the ultimate, the highest point. And in the last time I checked, there was no marriage in the truth. But there was, and is, a beautiful parent-child relationship, one that we can all grasp, because we are all the result of parentage, whether that same relationship has lived up to the divine model or not. I bristled at the idea, I still do, that someone cannot fully understand God's love because they have not yet been espoused for it. And what was Paul's Late singleness taught me just how uncomfortable the world is with the idea of waiting or that any state outside the cultural, culturally prescribed norms. And I'm not saying that all singles are waiting. On the contrary, some are called to live as beautifully whole and complete single persons for a lifetime, just as we're all called to wholeness and completeness. It's made available to all of us at any stage in Christ. But for me, Singleness was one of those waiting groups that taught me the sense of holy dissatisfaction of looking forward to a life I could just see on the other side of the glass door. But it also taught me about how the world can be totally unhelpful as I waited through those years. Now you, you are the generation that can fix this. You are in the midst of a community right now beautiful single people and beautiful married people and the opportunity for them to be together as one family in Christ every single day. This is your chance. Learn it here. Learn it well. Take it to the church and teach it to them. Rather than making us outliers, I believe that waiting is an integral part of the human condition. Those people that you minister to on any given day, we'll be sitting before you waiting with questions like, when will my pain end? When will I get a job or the right job? When will we have children? When will my child come back to God? When will my spouse change? When will my life begin? When will my life end? Some of those will be serious waiting questions. Some of them will be trivial, but I guarantee that no one feels trivial about their waiting when they're in the midst of it. If we learn to embrace waiting as a part of life, this Advent life that God has called us to, then we'll learn to beware the idea that waiting means we can't be happy. That happiness is sometime, somehow on the other side of that door, around the next corner, that it's at the next place, the next degree, the next relationship, the next church, the next semester, the next Christmas break, the next stage of parenting or occupation or marital status or financial status or stage of life, that those somehow hold the happiness instead of the hands of the God that offers us the already, even as we look to the not yet. 
until we give up this idea that happiness is after the waiting, happiness will never come to where we're at. Advent sets our internal calendars because it reminds us that waiting is not a deficit. It's part of our human condition. It's an annual event for us in the church. In fact, it's also part of the divine condition. We love and serve a God who waits. If you think you've waited for important things in your life, imagine being immortal and omnipotent. There's a lot of waiting if you're around forever with divine foreknowledge. A lot of waiting. Imagine standing at the gates of Eden and putting animal skins on Adam and Eve, knowing that you wish you could clothe them in your own righteousness. Imagine the years that Jesus stood waiting for the manger, ready to come and meet us in the flesh, ready for the phrase, in due time, to take effect. Imagine Jesus standing, looking in the eyes of the disciples and asking, who do you say that I am, hoping and praying that they had been listening and paying attention, and then listening to the disciples do some seminary-worthy pontificating with big words and empty answers and thinking to yourself, wait for it? And looking in Peter's eyes and watching the light come on, hearing him say, you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Imagine standing at Lazarus' grave, weeping, calling for him to come forth, and wishing you could just go ahead right then and defeat death forever, once and for all, waiting as it brought pain to those you loved again and again. Imagine God watching over each of us our whole lives long and seeing his image embedded in us, waiting for it to develop and come out, chasing us with prevenience and justifying and sanctifying grace while he sails around each of us again and again, looking for an opportunity to land. We sometimes pout and pray and yell at God about the things that have not yet been done. What are you waiting for, God? That's what I want to say when I see how broken the world it is, but we need to remember God has done a lot of waiting. That God is waiting still. Back in our passage from Isaiah, past Jesse's tree where that little green shoot is coming up, there's a picture that Isaiah offers of a kingdom that has not yet come complete, a picture that artists have called the peaceable kingdom of animals that are natural enemies, a wolf and a lamb, a leopard and a goat, a calf and a lion, a cow and a bear, all grazing and reclining and frolicking together. Can you picture it? There's no more enmity between nature or between humans and nature since a nursing baby in this picture puts its hand down a snake's den. And we had our family in town from Texas last week, and when Texans get together, especially West Texans, we tell snake stories. And there were quite a few snake stories told, stories that would make the hair on your neck stand up, stories about finding a little snake here, a big snake there, in unexpected and surprising and innocent locations. Once you hear a few of these stories, you will look before you sit down everywhere you go. But I'll tell you that there is no story about setting the baby down next to the snake's hole. Who does that? Isaiah's picture makes no sense to us in this age because this picture is of the world healed, the advent completed. Christ arrived. It has only one explanation. As Isaiah says, 
The earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as much as the waters cover the sea. This is a picture of what God is waiting for, what he's still waiting for, that we wait alongside him. Imagine his patience. The wolf and the lamb are tearing each other apart still, and God still believes these words from Isaiah, even as he knows, as we do, that the world is not finished yet, that things are not the way they're supposed to be. I looked a couple of times this week, but the words of Isaiah 11 are still written in ink in my Bible. They have not disappeared like vanishing ink. And the fact that the story, the picture of the peaceable kingdom is still in scripture today reminds me that God is still expecting this reality to break in. And that as we wait for it, God is waiting beside us. That he is sharing his own divine vocation of waiting with us. Even as the kingdom of heaven begins to break in this season with the birth of a little child who shall lead them and continues to break in even now, today, this week, as that picture of a kingdom begins to come true around us, God longs it into development from negative to full image. That picture that maybe somewhere in a refugee camp, maybe in the nation of Jordan, maybe among millions of others, there is a refugee family. Maybe they haven't lived in their own nation or own home for years now. Maybe they're living in what looks like hell to them waiting for a way out. And when I hope and pray and think about this family, I hope that they don't have access to international news, that they haven't seen those promising to reject them for what they have not done before they even come. I hope that instead they have a picture in their minds, an image, even as wolves devour lambs all around them that somewhere on the other side of the world, in a tiny town in Kentucky, our family prepares, gestates, waits expectantly, pregnant with hope, getting ready one of the rooms in our father's house, dreaming of their advent to us. One that will require miracles, not about leopards and lambs and snakes, but of overcoming governments and lawyers and paperwork and maybe biggest of all, fear. That will take a miracle. It will take the wall between kingdoms breaking down in a big way. And while we may wait patiently, we will not wait passively. We will step in and help this kingdom come. That is how God waits. Patiently, but not passively. That is how we are called to wait. Waiting is not a waste of time. It is not a sign of incompleteness. It is a divine trait. To wait is divine. For those of us that live in this already but not yet kingdom of God's come to earth, we will always find, until that peaceable kingdom arrives, we will always find a sense of holy dissatisfaction with this current age. And so we advent. It's a season where we learn what it means to embrace holy waiting. It's a season that celebrates not just the arrival of a baby in, a Jesus, in Jesus, but uh, the sprouting of a stump that we all thought was dead. 
and the arrival of a kingdom that defies the laws of nature. But it also serves to heighten our longing for the return of Christ, when this picture will be completed and all will be redeemed and made whole. Isaiah defines us as a waiting people, and one who waits alongside a God who shares that waiting with us. May God grant us the grace to wait well. Let's pray. God, we are bad at this. We do not wait well. We want what we want, and we want it now. And even, even when our motives are good and pure and following after yours, sometimes we don't understand why you don't just come down here and fix this. Lord, teach us to wait as you wait. Teach us to wait in this season patiently but not passively. Lord, make for us opportunities even today to tear the wall between kingdoms and let your kingdom come down. God, teach us through Advent. Come and find us even as we look for you. Come, Lord Jesus.